This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, home of NARC Troopers. Today, I would like to talk about something. It's uh, specifically for narcissists. Um, It's called Mortification. And the, the title is The Mortification of the Narcissist, the Shocking Reaction When People with NPD Face the Discrepancy Between an Ideal View of the Self and a Drastically Contrasting Realization. It's like a wake-up call, sort of, only they don't wake up. So here we go. I did it. I mortified my husband. I was married for a long time to a disordered, maladapted man with NPD, and we lived mostly happily in a mutually psychotic state, also known as a shared fantasy, for almost 16 years. And while the illusion of a perfect marriage permeated our union, it was indeed nothing more than an illusion, and so very far from perfect. Perhaps it could more aptly be defined as a pair of delusional dependents, one an emotional hostage, and the other a delusional child. Narcissistic mortification is the primitive terror of self-dissolution, disintegration, and it's triggered by the sudden exposure of one's sense of a defective self. It is extreme in its intensity and complete lack of perspective, causing the anxiety associated with it to become traumatic. For example, you know, I knew from listening to my husband that he knew that there was something wrong with him, but I don't think he understood the full scope and sequence of it. He never fully uh, wrapped his mind around all the ramifications of what it meant to be um, narcissistic in the sense of it being a personality disorder. And so, but he knew, he knew that there was something that made him different from other people, that he was not like them, that he had a different rule book. He played by a different um, um, set of of rules and that he um, was not one of the mainstream. So for us, the wounding and subsequent mortification happened after a singular but monumental transformative transgression that he made. I had tolerated over a dozen years at the time of his incredibly poor judgment, recklessness, and impulsivity, all characteristic of these personality disorders in cluster B. 
He had failed to measure up as a lifelong partner with any kind of morals or ethics, conscience or guilt, or loyalty or fidelity. There were serial offenses that ranged from crippling porn addiction to cyber sex, chat rooms, and dick pics. Interspersed with a regular diet of technology-induced cheating were real-life moments of sheer folly. Picking up strangers everywhere from Whole Foods to bus stops and off the streets, as well as experimentation with sex workers. All those years and all those betrayals, I stayed. I stayed due to my own dependent personality disorder, which by the way is in the DSM manual as a cluster C disorder, whereas narcissism, sociopathy, and psychopathy are cluster B disorders. Um, so we were both in the book of, of not okay. Um, and so I stayed due to this dependent personality disorder, unhealthy attachment style, lack of boundaries, my history with mentally ill people, beginning with my mother when I was too young to even remember, and the, the um, cult-like trauma and the trauma bonding that was that created a powerful addiction to him, like being brainwashed and like having Stockholm Syndrome or something, you know. It was very, very powerful. It altered the chemicals in my brain. And I've recently been doing studies um, after hearing a lecture by Sam Vaknin, and he was talking about um, these new... Uh, things that they've discovered and that they're applying to narcissism that have to do with um, uh, the way that they hijack your brain is that they sync up with it. And that when you're with this person in this relationship, your brain um, is pretty much the same as the narcissist brain. They're operating on the same frequency. They have the same EKG, if they hooked you up, it's frightening to think about, but you lose agency over your own self. Well, I'm going to have uh, a podcast about that coming up. I have to think about what I want to say about that, but um, if you want to read about it, I put an article on Medium uh, today, and it's called The uh, invasion of the Brain Snatchers. <laughs> Remember that movie, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? This shows how old I am. I think that must have been in the 70s. It was such a cheesy, terrible movie. But um, yeah, everybody's pretty familiar with that. So that's an allusion to that movie. The title of my article about this brain synergy um, is The Invasion of the Brain Snatchers. Um, Pragen Pesqueda on medium.com. Check that out. It's a good article. It will, I promise it will teach you things that you don't know that you need to know to be able to um, navigate this world of NPD. So anything, so, so let me, let me just go on. Everything changed for us one October night while I lay sick in bed with a high fever. He finally did something so horrific and unspeakably harmful 
so incestually perverse that it shifted something in our dynamic. After a brief separation of a couple of months and following this, this incident, he, he came back home. The center of gravity had shifted between us, but he came back home. Um, and I wanted him to, I chose him again to come back home. And, um, in retrospect, that was something that I did because I felt like there was no other choice at the time. And, you know, I can't really beat myself up for all of that. When you think about what was going on with me in that relationship and how, much of my own identity and authority and empowerment as a as an individual was just non-existent that we were both living in this delusion um it was the only thing that i felt that i could do at the time i regret it shouldn't have happened but it did and that's all i was capable of doing at that time is saying yes when i should have said no uh, you know, I didn't have boundaries. I didn't have, my head was murky with all of the um, stuff that these relationships with these people with NPD do to your brain. And it's not like they have some insidious evil conspiracy to hijack your brain. It happens naturally because they're predators. And the fact that they are predators also happens naturally it's just what they are it's what they have become at a very 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 young age it's, and you know predators do certain things and behave in certain ways it's they're not intentional it's inherent ingrained hardwired in there to be that way so you know you think about evil is when you have free will and you choose to do evil instead of good. And, you know, one of the reasons I have not uh, taken <laughs> irrational action against my husband and done something crazy to him, probably, I'm thinking, is because I always think about how a person with his brain, with the brain damage that he has, with the, with the delusional thinking and magical thinking and and just um, blame shifting and cognitive dissonance and the place where he lives isn't real. He's not of this world and he's mentally incapable of making the decision to do the right thing. I'm not just giving him an out. That's not a cop out making excuses for him. It's a fact. It's a fact. He can't. It's not like he chooses to willfully harm me. He has convinced himself in his broken, broken brain, he has convinced himself that I am the bad guy, that I've done something to him worthy of contempt and hatred. And so he, he must go on and be the awesome, perfect, wonderful, amazing person that he is flawless and grandiose as narcissists are he has to be the white hat in the in the little in the you know like in the westerns you got the white hat and the black hat he has to be the white hat he really believes he's the white hat and he has made me wear the black hat 
even though that is so far from reality. I mean, what he has done is evil. What he has done is perverse. And what he has done is, is heartless and cruel and cold and unconscionable and lacking empathy and blah, blah, blah. But, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't believe that he's like that. He thinks he's a good guy. <laughs> if y'all haven't watched that show on Netflix called You, Y-O-U, You, y'all need to watch that. It's what, you know, all the way through it, I'm thinking, I know this guy. I lived with this guy for, for 16 years. This is very familiar, the way he thinks, the way he makes himself always the hero and everyone else. You know, he's just trying to be a good person and, and there's collateral damage, people that get, um, killed, murdered, because he's trying to do the right thing and be a good person. It's just, you know, it gives you a little glimpse into the convoluted, twisted, sick and mentally ill minds of a person who truly suffers from uh, NPD or ASPD or psychosis, like the psychopaths. They are not capable of making any choice, really, because they don't even see the choices clearly or accurately. The choices that they put in front of themselves are fabricated, false, fantasy, delusional choices that aren't even real. It's crazy. It, it, you know, and so without free will in choosing the evil, I don't think we can technically call it evil or call them evil. What they do is hands down 100%, oh yeah, that's evil. But why they do it is another matter. Anyway, um, that's sorry for the getting off the track here. Let me come back to what we're talking about. So he did this horrible thing and he came back and things were different and things were weird. And I wasn't the rich, wonderful source of fuel and supply that I once was. Uh, with the constant adoration. You're so awesome. You're so talented. You're so smart. You're so handsome. You're the best of the best. I, I didn't do that so much after this thing that happened uh, because I couldn't, you know, it, it crushed me. And uh, even in the, within the fantasy, uh, things shifted and that enthusiasm and complete blind adoration was just absent um, so if I felt guilty for staying and guilty for loving him and guilty for feeling happy with him and guilty that I hadn't put the ones that he hurt first ahead of him. And, you know, it was my addiction speaking to a large degree and my fear of abandonment and my unhealthy attachment styles and my childhood wounding and my dependent personality disorder. And there were a million things that were my, the things that were wrong with me. They're my issues, my problems, my, my, um, things that, you know, I'm in therapy for and have been in therapy on and off for the last 40 years to deal with childhood trauma that was absolutely horrific. And that, gave me toxic programming and unhealthy scripts and all of that. So yeah, that was at, was at play. And yes, that's why I stayed. But um, I felt so guilty for doing it. You know, when, when our eyes would meet, instead of all the giddy goosebumps and swoon worthy moments and stuff, there was just sort of a cold, chilly distance. And so that's when it happened. 
he withered. He just shriveled up and withered. He disintegrated. And that's what mortification is. When I, when I would not let it go, and I kept bringing up what he did and telling him, him how loathsome and perverse it was, there was no escaping it. I was constantly, it was with us, always with us in the room. And a person with narcissistic personality disorder cannot thrive in that environment. They have to have fuel and supply, and that is not what he was getting. So when I confronted him, you know, with his actions and the catastrophic consequences of them, you know, he, what he had done um, did not align with his vision of himself. Because remember, I just said he has to always believe he's the good guy. He's the victim. He's the victim. He's the poor person that everybody takes advantage of in terrible ways. Everybody, you know, wants to use him. Everybody wants to have sex with him. Everybody wants to exploit him. He's just a poor, good guy that's just victimized by all these terrible people. Yeah, just like that guy on you. You got to watch that show. Anyway. This, this false construct that, that these people with NPD have that they create, they wear it like a second skin and they just cannot accept or process the enormity of this shameful thing that they have done. And shame is the narcissist's worst feeling that compels them to silence their true authentic selves in the first place, to escape the shame that they had really early on. Um, so to downplay it, you know, there, you know, he reacted with this blanket of denial to downplay it. And he never really addressed what he had done. I don't ever remember hearing him say, I did a terrible thing. I don't know what I was thinking. I had been, you know, drinking and drugging or whatever. And I was not in my normal sobriety state. And so I made a really bad decision. He never said that. He never even acknowledged that he did something really awful. You know, he might have looked contrite, put his head down like a, like an animal, like a dog when you're chastising him for peeing on the carpet. You know, they hang their head low and tuck their tail in and look like they're, you know, whipped and, you know, sad or whatever. You know, I got some of that, but no, he never said, I did something terrible. He had to deny that to himself. And it was just too much of an incongruity there with me telling him, look at what you did. Look at what you did and what the consequences are. And that did not align with the vision that he had to have of himself. And that's when he started devalue, devaluing me. That is when he started looking for my replacement. That is when he had to look away from our little cocoon of coziness and comfort where all of his needs were met. He had to look away because I could not provide that for him anymore. He was like a little kid who breaks something or makes a mess, you know. The only response they can muster is to try to deny it or cover it up. And when that fails, they put on their cute little face and they give hugs and kisses and try to charm their way out of trouble. It's pitiful. 
which is different from being pathetic. Pathetic is more of a negative connotation, like you're you're just sickening or disgusting or pathetic. But he, this was pitiful. It was sad to see a grown man react like a little kid that was in trouble and to pull out this little bag of tricks broke my heart. It was like, oh my gosh, you really aren't capable of owning this, accepting responsibility and accountability and reacting as a grown man. You don't have it in you to do that, do you? And I confronted him with that. All of this was just too much. Um, you know, NPD is predictable, follow certain patterns. Um, they become narcissistically injured at some point, then, then they move on to devaluation. This narcissistic injury occurs when, when the narcissist react negatively to perceived or real criticism or judgment or boundaries, or just pretty much anytime you say no, no to them, um, then they react with narcissistic injury. But but that happens before they have this complete meltdown, disintegration, mortification. Lead, you know, the injuries lead up to that. You know, they can start out as, as covert, vulnerable narcissist, suffer a narcissistic injury, experience what is called collapse and mortification, only to use their impress, impressive, like shape-shifting skills and magical thinking delusions to rebound and jump back on their feet with speed and stealth. After displaying these mind-blowing adaptability and reinvention strategies, they're off to the races with a new improved version of themselves, or so they believe, and they erase every memory of you they compartmentalize any remnants that remain of you. And they use their gift of selective amnesia. I can't think right now of what that is called, but there's a name for it. When narcissists are able to have selective amnesia, I'll try to get that for you next time. It's called something. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Don't know what it is right now. But they do all this to rewrite history and they rewrite it in a way that, re that in no way, in no way does it resemble reality. It's a construct of their fantasies and their magical thinking and their delusional world that they live in. They just make up stuff that never happened. And then they totally erase things that did happen so that they don't have an accurate picture of anything. They develop this whole new personality and, and they can also develop new personality disorders. Like there's a very murky fluid line between borderline, for example, and schizoid disorders, schizophrenic, you know, paranoid schizophrenic disorders, things like that, delusional, psychotic types of things, you know, could be overlays, could be underpinnings, could be all mixed up in this big stew, in this big pot of mess, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the, the way that they go back and forth is fluid. So there's not just like one diagnosis for them. They could be many things one day and then later be something else. They transition between these states as a reaction to, um, to gaps, like 
gaps in reality or, or um, where, where like reality intrudes into their programming and they're like computers with a glitch. The narcissistic mortification follows. The transition sometimes from overt to covert and back via collapse and mortification, you know, is mind blowing. You know, anything is possible. And Sam Backman has a lot of YouTube videos on this whole covert, uh, overt to covert, and then back how they move around and what that has to do with their mortification, where things kind of come apart for them and they unravel and then they put themselves back together. And when they do, um, you know, they put themselves back together in a way that they're, they could be something else that they, that they weren't before. It's wild. So collapse leads to mortification and disables their, their false self. So the false self, the shield goes down temporarily. The covert embarks on reconstructing this false self because they got to get that shield back up as quickly as possible through antisocial displays of defiant, impulsive, reckless, callous misconduct, uh, delusional, psychotic conduct, um, another round of collapse and mortification, and then, you know, they come back and the false self is finally restored. I witnessed this with my husband when he left me. He uh, was with, went to another person that he already had lined up and was with her for a couple of months, but it didn't work out. I think she saw the crazy and ran for the door and, and left. Um, when she left him, just like, you know, maybe six weeks, seven weeks into um, after they moved in together, uh, they, you know, he disintegrated. I, I met up with him like two months after to, to talk about the divorce agreements and financial division of properties and all of that stuff. And I didn't recognize him. He was like someone else. He had collapsed in upon himself. He looked like a little kid who that was in trouble. He looked like he had, you know, he had been um, like shrunk into a smaller version of himself. I mean, he was six feet tall. And I remember him standing tall and, you know, being kind of cocky and had some swagger and some sway and, um, but when I saw him this two months after, he was um, scrambling to reconstitute himself, to pull himself back together, just like that guy in Terminator that comes apart and goes, comes like, the, you know who I'm talking about, the robot guy that they, um, he's running and then they shoot him. It looks like mercury all over the freeway and it's little balls of silver and they start blobbing back together and coming back together. And before you know it, he has like uh, put himself back together again. Yeah. It's just like that. And that's what he was doing at the time. And he was just had crumbled and it was crazy. I mean, he did not, I didn't recognize anything about him. Even his voice was different. The way he was dressed was different. It was nuts. And then I saw him about two months after that, and he was even nuttier, but it was like he had put together some, um, some piecework kind of false self that was just a hodgepodge of all kinds of craziness all over the place. He was delusional. He was talking about how he had special powers, how he talked to aliens in the desert, and he was a, a, a 
like a ascended master. It was nutty stuff. And, and so it took a while for him to reinvent himself with a new false self persona. And his new false self is not like the one he had with me. So my husband, that version of him is totally gone. There's nothing recognizable in the person that exists now because he's built a whole new facade and he's built it off of the new people in his life that he is feeding off of, that he's, that he's sucking their life force. Um, and I don't recognize it. He's very different. He looks different, talks different, everything. And he'll say, I'm the same guy. No, you're the same crazy. You're the same dysregulated brain damaged person that you were with me. But this false persona is quite different. Um, you know, uh, I think that we have to understand um, that there's no way to fix this. That's one of the hardest things to acknowledge. Um, one of the hardest things to acknowledge is there's nothing that we can do. Um, you know, what happens to, to the people in these situations? You know, I'll tell you something that Robert Torbay said. He said, as your body fills with puncture wounds, you will begin to bleed a deep sadness, the most highly sought after food among the aliens. Its purpose drives them into a frenzy. Um, Robert Torbay from Cora said that. I love the, your body fills with puncture wounds and you will begin to bleed a sadness that these alien narcissists will feed off of. It is nourishment for them. It's fuel. It is supply. It doesn't have to be the affectionate lovey-dovey stuff. It doesn't have to be the lovey-dovey. They can get fuel or supply from negative stuff, from fear, from anger, from all those kinds of things, from pain, from all of that. It feeds them too. You know, they get it either way. So, um, yeah, Robert Torbay, you should check out some of the people on Cora. really good stuff there. So, um, it is a slow acting poison that destroys their mate. They, um, these narcissists are like aliens who have one purpose in their life and that is to extract life force. As they are cycling through the phases and stages of their mental quagmire, blaming and shaming their victims and fucking their way through dating sites and the internet, you know, hunting for fresh supply and stroking their big fat ego. The ones who have been caught in their web of delusion and deceit, those of us, you know, are, we're like slowly decomposing and disintegrating from the inside out. And while the mate of the narcissist may be dying this slow death, um, they also find it impossible to recover after the discard as well, because the narcissist has an amazing resiliency and adaptability that regular people don't have. 
you know, it makes them the alpha predator in the jungle, whereas we are not. Um, like many other reptiles, you know, even if you cut off an appendage, they just grow it back, capture them, and think you have tamed the beast, and they will attack you when you least expect it and tear out your throat in some horrific Siegfried and Roy moment, uh, you know, all blood and carnage and everything. You know, they just when you think that they are too injured to go on or possibly even dead, surprise, like any other jungle cat uh, predator, they have nine lives and nine chances to destroy their prey. They're just playing possum. They're not that hurt. You know, they are shapeshifters, chameleons, stealthy as panthers moving silently in the night. Sly as a python with those jet black reptilian eyes and agile moves as they seductively wrap their themselves, you know, around your neck and start to squeeze. Remember that Guns N' Roses song? Welcome to the jungle. It gets worse here every day. You learn to live like life like an animal in the jungle where we play. Yeah. Uh, Axel Rose. Man, he was a piece of work. Um, maybe he wrote those lyrics. That would be fitting, right? Um, anyway, the, the narcissist may cycle through periods of injury and wounding and ultimately a temporary state of mortification, but it doesn't last. Just as the actor sheds his garments and assumes a new role, the narcissist is gifted at reinvention and a smart cookie to boot. You don't get to be king of the jungle if you're a dummy, or by showing mercy, or by granting reprieves. You're the victim. You're just food. That's all you are. You're just food. Because back to that song in the jungle, welcome to the jungle. Feel my, my serpentine. Watch it bring you to your knees, knees. I want to hear you scream. Ah, that's just some disturbing, dark sort of uh, seductive in a sadistic kind of uh, murdering kind of way. It's a little bit rapey. It's a little bit murdery. Not sounding too good to me. Okay. Recently, <clears throat> someone, someone I know, expressed their impatience with my recovery. It's been two years and four months. And they said to me, I hope you get to the place where you can put all this stuff about narcissism away and just be free to enjoy your life. Hmm. Well, I thought about that for a minute and, and I thought to myself, you know, um, you can't just put something down that has become part of who you are. The experience with the mentally um, and morally impaired partner will cause trauma and addiction in the brain and all these chemicals and all this other, you know, list of things that uh, it changes people on a cellular level. 
And it's not just being emotional and being dramatic. It's stuff beyond your control. Trauma lives in the body and the minds and souls of those who may never really be free of it completely. You know, the verdict is out on that one. Some people say, oh yeah, you can be totally free of all this. And others say, no, that's not true. You're going to have to learn to manage it and live beside it because it never really goes away. Well, two years and four months out, I don't know which one of those camps have the truth. I don't know which one is real. Uh, I am suspecting that at least for some people, it doesn't go away. And there's even a, a new, new diagnosis that's going to appear in the new edition of the DSM manual of different mental illnesses. And it's um, prolonged grief um, disorder. That would be PGD, uh, PGD. So just like, um, I know maybe most of you are familiar with NAS, N-A-S, Narcissistic Abuse Syndrome. That's a thing. It's a diagnosable, coded diagnosis, Narcissistic Abuse Syndrome, for the people that have been married or in relationships with them or who have parents or children or siblings who are narcissists or bosses or friends or whatever and have been abused by them for a, uh, a period of time so that they are, uh, their world is upended by this experience and they have been um, terribly traumatized by it. You know, NAS, narcissistic abuse syndrome, it's a thing that you can be diagnosed with. And so now the new one that is scientifically substantiated enough for it to appear in the diagnostic manual is the one where it's the grief about the, the um, extended grief that you can't seem to get past, you know, you can't get beyond it. And uh, I heard that like um, Sam, I believe it was Sam Vaknin who said about 10%, uh, at least 10% of people who have been in, in relationships with people with NPD or sociopaths or psychopaths, um, they suffer from this uh, extended grief that doesn't go away. No matter what treatment or therapy they get, it doesn't go away. It's just a prolonged, um, prolonged grief disorder. It's a disorder just like narcissistic personality disorder or dependent personality disorder or any of these personality disorders, it, it's not necessarily a personality disorder, but it's a disorder nonetheless. And you know, all these disorders, you know what they really are. And I've heard numerous people say this, experts, mental health experts and scientists and neuroscientists and all kinds of different people. They say all these personality disorders, borderline is in cluster B, borderline, um, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, sociopathy, psychopathy, all of these, including even probably cluster C, which is where I am on, on all, that's where I am in the manual, is cluster C with dependent personality disorder. All of these disorders 
that my husband and I both suffered from, him from the cluster B NPD and me from the cluster C DPD for dependent personality disorder. You know what they all have in common, including borderline? Trauma, early childhood trauma, some event that was the impetus, the catalyst, the, the qualifying event that happened that caused a response and an interruption in the development of the child. child healthy child development was halted, was interrupted and paralyzed, frozen in time when while the these terrible things happened to that child and you carry that forward. So anyway, they're all trauma responses, including the brand new one with the prolonged, it's called prolonged grief disorder, prolonged grief disorder. You will hear more about this. It's fairly new, but, and it's going to be in the manual with the next, um, edition that comes out. And so, yeah, I think, I think I have that, you know what they said? They said, um, it's natural to grieve for about a year. 12 to 18 months is okay, normal, even necessary and healthy. But after about somewhere in that murky zone between 12 months and 18 months, you need to be feeling better and getting better and being freer from the grief. But when you don't and you go as long as I have two years and four months, there's a problem something is stuck or stalled, or there is some issue that's unresolved that is preventing you from being able to process the grief and then put it away and get on with your life. Uh, you can be very functional. You can appear very happy to people who don't know you, uh, or at work or something like that. But at the core of it, you're not okay. You are still unable to accept what has happened and you feel the sadness and you have the anxiety and the panic and the PTSD and all of these other uh, auxiliary symptoms that come back to grief. And it's, and it happened because of trauma. So you can't just snap out of it. You can't just say, okay, I'm done with being sad and grieving and having my broken heart. I'm moving on. I will give you testimonial right here. I was married twice. And with my first husband, I grieved for about, I think about 14 months before I had my first um, uh, feelings of, of like meeting someone and talking to somebody else for the first time. It took 14 months of complete isolation and complete, uh, you know, some therapy and some sadness and a lot of crying and and all of that, you know, but after about 14 months, I was ready to meet people and socialize and, and, um, you know, all that I was ready. And I would say within 18 months, uh, it was done. You know, I saw him again. We talked again. I didn't feel the same. I had closed the door. I had put away what feelings that I had. I had processed them. I had grieved them. It was like a death where I mourned him and then I put it away and it was like, he was dead to me. I mean, he stood right in front of me and I felt nothing. 
it was like, okay, this is a person. I have two children with them. This is a person I was married to for like eight years. Um, okay. That was my first husband, 14 months done, done. It was over and there was nothing left, nothing. And so I thought maybe that would happen this time, two years and four months still with me, still with me. So this is a thing guys. Um, I can tell you from personal experience that that is real. So these people who say, just get out there, live your life, go on, you know, that that's just not happening. It, it's not a choice. You can't, some of you, some of us can't, and maybe some of you that are fortunate can work through it and get over it within that 12 to 18 months. That is the normal time span, but some of us can't, we didn't choose to be stuck in this. I don't want this. I want to get out there and enjoy my life and make new dreams and have new visions and new plans and be excited about my life and have joy and have something that I'm looking forward to. I want all of that. I'm ready for all of that. I deserve all of that, but it doesn't work that way. You know, I, I didn't choose this and I didn't want to be the spokesman for narcissistic abuse recovery. It's kind of a like, no, I don't want to be the poster child for that. I also don't think we can stigmatize it and make it a shameful thing. Like, oh, she was with a narcissist and they had a crazy relationship and then he dumped her. You know, there's nothing embarrassing about that. He's the one who is, is, is that did this. And yes, I had some problems that you know, but my, my dependent personality disorder, which is essentially codependency and, um, abandonment issues and some things like that. But other than that, I'm perfectly sane and healthy and I don't have anything else wrong with me. These are things that can be, uh, responsive to treatment that can be remedied, that can be overcome. I'm treatable. People who have narcissistic personality disorder and those people in that group, like the sociopaths and psychopaths, they're not very, very, um, almost zero, uh, success rate in treating those folks. So thank goodness we're not one of them because then there would be no hope only, only just delusion and our, ourselves tricking ourselves into believing a bunch of lies that are not true about reality, about life, about ourselves. How horrible is that to live a lie and to have just this complete fake life be the only thing that you're experiencing and convincing yourself that it's real when it's not. That's pretty tragic. That's just epic sadness. That's horrible. And I, you know, I, I don't know what to say. It's a terrible thing. You know, this thing, I wouldn't choose it. I want to be like a travel blogger. <laughs> if I had to be any kind of writer, I want to write the great novel and be considered right up there with Middlemarch, <laughs> you know, 19th century quality classic literature, great prose. I want to write like Joan Didion and Sylvia Plath more contemporary role models of mine. I want to be a writer that's got the chops to write 
amazing stuff that's going to be evocative and compelling and make people feel all these intense emotions and and have these epiphanies and 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 connect to me and have things resonate with them and leave with this feeling of just like oh i've been through something and this was wonderful and it was beautiful and, and thank you i want that i want to be that kind of writer or a travel blogger and i want to say hey where in Portugal can you get the best little custard pies? Where's the best beach close to Lisbon? How about visiting the castles of Sintra? I want to write articles about that. But no. What do I write about? Narcissistic abuse recovery. What is the narcissist? What did they do to people? What kind of people stay with them and take it year after year after year? And what happens when they're gone? How do those people live? How do they live without that shared fantasy partner who is mentally not okay? So I didn't choose that. Who in their right mind would choose that? That's kind of hard. It's painful in a way. And to share people's pain and to hear people tell their stories about their tragedies with these people that are so disordered. I hear them every day. I would rather people be talking to me about I had this great meal on, in this beachside restaurant in Cais Cais in Portugal. Yes, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about how this person humiliated them and robbed them of their dignity and made their children hate them and lost their job and their money and they're homeless now. Those are hard things to hear. But you know what? I didn't choose it. It chose me and I can't ignore it. What my heart desires most is to have that fake faux life back that, that I had when I thought everything was pretty much okay. And even though I knew it wasn't, I didn't look at that part. I averted my eyes until it passed, sometimes fairly quickly. And then I got back to the business of having the perfect life. And, uh, you know, right beside my zombified, um, functional, um, empty, hollow man, who was sort of an extension of me um, and sort of a Stepford husband, you know, Stepford Wives. If you don't know that reference, then I know you're probably a youngster, but it was a thing. I think back in the 80s, the Stepford Wives. Anyway, I want to be spending a COVID-free retirement doing a museum crawl all through Europe and gorging on tasty treats and riding down some canal somewhere in the rain and holding hands and walking into uh, gothic churches and hearing choirs sing and lighting candles for the dead and having more great food and and just watching the sun melt into the sea. I want that. That's what I want. I want the life I was promised. I want the life I deserve. I want the life that I have worked so hard my whole life to earn. Playing by by the, the rules, by going to work every day. So rain or shine, snow or blizzard, um, sickness and health. I was there showing up, doing the work, standing in front of students every day for over 40 years. Every day for over 40 years with no break, 
consecutively year after year after year after decade after decade i have earned some amount of joy and comfort before i die but that doesn't look like that's on on the schedule not the life i thought i was going to have not with the person that i thought would be there beside me because you know why it wasn't real it wasn't real none of the stuff for 15 years of marriage for 16 years that i knew this person none of it was real and then came covid and now everyone is gone my family since i have known him have all passed away died gone my children grown up gone um you know these people they take it all and they leave you alone this narcissist stuff that i can't put down how could i so in conclusion remember this people with npd only want three things from you supply or it's also called fuel benefits like your money your connections your prestige your mind trust um, your personality they want to take all your benefits and and well and then the traits are number three where they want to copy you like a printer you know like a copy machine they want to make a clone of you and then absorb it so they can be that and reflect it to you and to the world supply benefits and traits they drain your energy and fuel they take your money they take your body and they take your mind and then they peel off your skin and wear it like a coat mortification is a terrible experience for narcissists and psychopaths but it's a temporary one and they rebound because they are resilient and they are adaptable and they are shapeshifters without a conscience without a soul without remorse without any of that and i'm not demonizing and vilifying them and saying oh they're so bad i'm saying they're so broken and damaged they can't feel these things that normal people feel they are so broken and damaged and whatever happened to them has done such a number on them that there's nothing in there they're empty they're hollow they're like the walking dead i'm not saying they're evil you have to have sense enough to have free will and choose evil to be evil right they don't have free will they don't have a choice they don't know what they're doing and on top of it all they believe that they are the white hat they are the good guys they make themselves believe that they are only have good intentions and they're so nice and that they're good people and it's just the saddest most heartbreaking thing ever to look at them and say how can you believe these things when you do the things you do to destroy people and then you look at those people you've destroyed and you feel nothing no mercy no remorse no empathy you know when you love people it hurts you to hurt them they don't feel that they don't feel that so guys while it may be easy 
for an empathetic person to feel pity for them. Remember the words of the, I'm going to quote Guns and Roses again. I'm sorry. I apologize. It's just so appropriate. Welcome to the jungle. I want to make you bleed. And they will watch you bleed out right in front of you, right in front of them. They will bleed. You will bleed. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. And in the end, they're just going to step right over your body and dance off into the sunset with the replacement that they have already selected before they murder you. So that is the ending. And you need to know that and be ready for it. And I I promise you, if your person is genuinely, really a person with narcissistic personality disorder, that kind, not just the regular harmless, oh, everybody's a narcissist, but if they have the disorder, the malignant mental illness that is this emptiness of this emptiness, if they have that, they can't change. They can't get better. They can't grow back their brain, the part that's damaged. They can't grow what's in supposed to be their soul and their spirit and their heart. It's not working. It's too damaged to save. Can't bring back the dead. You're not Lazarus. And you got to let them go. So that's my message. Sorry we went long tonight. (laughs) Lots of important things to say about mortification. Um, Hey guys, my my book is out. I'm going to plug that real quick. It's a collection of all my articles, all these podcasts kind of topics. And it's put into one collection, carefully curated, really cheap, like 14 bucks. So I'm not making hardly anything off of it. I just want to put it in the hands of people that need it for recovery and people who need it to understand. So if you've got people around you, friends and family who just don't get it, they don't know what you're going through. They don't understand narcissism. Get them a copy of this book, stick it under the tree and maybe um, they'll have a little bit better understanding by the time they finish it. At least you'll have something to talk about over tea. Yeah. Okay. Stay safe. It's a crazy world right now. It's um, getting crazier every day. And we need to get stronger so that we can survive in that crazy world. And that means we got to get up and we got to get on and um, do our best to push forward. Even if we're not able to achieve full recovery, we need to get closer and not give up, not give up hope. Just keep going. And, um, you know, hopefully things will work out for the best. All right. Much love to everybody. Bye-bye.